Hello and welcome. Today we continue with the poems of Mahmoud Darwish by looking at one poem titled Inanna's Milk from Darwish's collection A Bed for a Stranger in 1999. Before I begin reciting the poem, I will delve into who Inanna was and her significance as a mythical figure. And after I recite the poem, we will look at some specific lines in detail and hopefully gain an appreciation for them. In the previous episode, I mentioned Darwish's Islamic faith and how some things that he writes about are found to be controversial or inappropriate by Islamic religious conservatives. One of those things is the use of ancient pagan mythology in his poetry. This poem is one such example. Inanna was a goddess of many other names that was worshipped by various ancient civilizations in the Middle East. The poem names the Sumerians specifically as they are the oldest of them, which was also worshipped under the name of Ishtar by the Akkadians, Babylonians and Assyrians. The Eastern Semitic languages called her Astoreth, from which the Greek Hellenized form Astarte appears. She was also equated with the Roman goddess of love and beauty, Venus. However, her domains in Sumerian mythology are far more extensive. Apart from love and beauty, hers were also the domains of sex, war, justice and political power. Known as the Queen of Heaven, she appears in Sumerian mythology more than any other deity, often with stories of how she conquered the domains of other gods. Her symbol is the eight-pointed star, and she is often depicted on reliefs as a woman, sometimes armed with spears or bows, and sometimes with wings. One famous Akkadian relief shows her with a lion leashed to her hand as she places a foot upon its back. The influence of Sumerian mythology goes beyond just names and goddesses. The ancient Greek myth of the lovers Aphrodite and Adonis, and of how the seasons came to be, is remarkably similar to the myth of Inanna and her descent into the underworld. It was said that her sister, Ereshkigal, ruled this domain, which was a large, dark, dreary cavern, deep beneath the ground, and in which life was but a shadowy representation on earth. Inanna descended to see her sister, who was mourning her husband, and knocked loudly on the first of seven gates, demanding to be let in. Ereshkigal was wary of Inanna's arrogance, and so she asked her gatekeeper to strip Inanna of all jewellery and clothing as she passed through. By the time Inanna stood before her sister, she was completely naked. Despite Ereshkigal's efforts to temper Inanna's haughtiness, the ambitious goddess made Ereshkigal rise out of her throne and she sat upon it instead. The seven judges of the underworld saw this arrogance as a transgression and struck her dead. For three days her corpse lay there while her loyal servant, Ninshubur, appealed to other gods for help. The god of wisdom, Enki, agreed and sent two sexless beings of his own creation to rescue her. They entered the underworld and sprinkled her corpse with the food and water of life. As she made her escape, Ereshkigal sent demons after her, but Inanna got away. Ereshkigal demanded another life as her replacement and tried to take her loyal servant, but Inanna refused. Instead, she discovered that her husband, Dumazid, had not mourned her, but was instead dressed lavishly, resting under a tree and being entertained by slaves and so she permitted her sister to take Dumazid as payment instead. As time passed, Inanna had a change of heart. She, along with Dumazid's sister, Geshtinana, mourned. Eventually, they all reached a compromise. 
Dumuzid would join his wife in heaven for six months, but his sister, Geshtinana, would replace him in the underworld during that time. Being the goddess of fertility and agriculture, the absence of Geshtinana from the world would bring about the colder, less fruitful seasons. The civilization of Sumeria from which Inanna emerged existed from around 4,500 years before the Common Era, or in other words, about 6,500 years ago before now. They are believed to be one of the world's first settled peoples in the Near East, taking advantage of the fertile land around what Darwish calls the Twin Rivers, the Euphrates, and the Tigris, straddling the border of modern-day Iraq and Iran at the most southern point. Their development of writing, including in both hieroglyphics and the cuneiform script, is believed to have contributed greatly to mankind's development of the written word. During the reign of Sargon of Akkad, in which he conquered the Sumerian city-states, it was proclaimed that their goddess Inanna and the Akkadian goddess Ishtar were in fact one and the same. Sargon of Akkad, who is seen as the first ruler of the first empire in the Near East, venerated Inanna and designated himself as an overseer of this deity. One Akkadian inscription reads, Sargon, king of Akkad, overseer of Inanna, king of Kish, anointed of Anu, king of the land, governor of Enlil. He defeated the city of Uruk and tore down its walls. In the battle of Uruk, he won and took Lugalzagesi, king of Uruk, in the course of the battle and led him in a collar to the gate of Enlil. Sargon's veneration of Inanna and the extent of his empire in Mesopotamia and parts of the Levant furthered her popularity even more. Her fusion with the goddess Ishtar shows that the pantheon of polytheistic faiths, especially in the ancient period, were not static, but in fact ever-changing. And with all of that in mind, I will now recite the poem. Yours are the twins of prose and poetry, as you fly from epoch to epoch, safe and whole, upon a cosmic howdah of stars. Your victims, your kind guards, carry your seven skies caravan by caravan. Those who tend your horses approach the water, between your hands and the twin rivers. The first among goddesses is the one most filled with us. A loving creator contemplates his works. He is enchanted with them and longs for them. Shall I do again what I did before? The sky's ink burns the scribes of your lightning. Their descendants send swallows down upon the Sumerian woman's procession, whether ascending or descending. For you, stretched out in the corridor in silk shirt and grey trousers, and not for metaphors of you, that I awaken my wilderness and tell myself that the moon will rise from my darkness. Let the water rain down upon us from the Sumerian sky as it does in myths. If my heart is sound, like the glass around us, fill it with your clouds, so that it may return to its people, dreamy and cloudy as a poor man's prayer. And if it is wounded, do not stab it with the gazelle's horns, for there are no longer any natural flowers near the Euphorites, so that after the war my blood can return in the anemones, and there is no jar in my temple for the goddess's wine in eternal Sumeria, in ephemeral Sumeria. For you, slender one in the hall, with slinky hands and a waist for playfulness, not for symbols of you, I awaken my wilderness and say, I will take this gazelle from its flock and gore myself with it. I do not wish your bed, 
to be sung. Let the winged bull of Iraq polish its horns with time, and the temple split open in the silver of dawn. Let death carry its metal instrument in the choir of old singers for Nebuchadnezzar's son. But I, who come from another time, must have a horse befitting this wedding. If there must be a moon, let it be high, a high moon made in Baghdad, neither Arab nor Persian, nor claimed by the goddesses all around us. Let it be free of memories and the wine of ancient kings. Let us finish this sacred wedding, O daughter of the eternal moon. Let us finish it here on the edge of the earth, in the place brought down by your hands, from the balcony of the vanishing paradise. For you, reading the newspaper in the hallway, fighting the flu, I say, take a cup of hot chamomile and two aspirin, so that Inanna's milk may settle in you, and we may know what time it is at the meeting of the two rivers. Now that we have an understanding of who Unana and the Sumerians were, we can also appreciate the poignant first line of the poem, Yours are the twins of prose and poetry. The myths of Inanna, including the one mentioned here, were preserved by the Sumerians in poetic form. This goddess not only has her own stories, but appears as a secondary character in the epic of the Sumerian ruler, Gilgamesh, at one time seeking his aid and at another time sending the bull of heaven to fight him for rejecting her hand in marriage. There is also a story about the great flood, bearing similarities to the story of Noah's flood in the Abrahamic religions. This we will look into later. To suggest that Darwish truly believes in the existence of Inanna and worships her would be absurd. His intellectual side instead appreciates her mythologies in inspiring the written word, to which he and all other writers owe a great deal. His poetic side sees a great opportunity in invoking the imagery associated with Inanna, especially with her status as the Queen of Heaven. Now the challenging thing about reading Arabic poetry that is translated into English is that sometimes the reader will come across a transliterated Arabic word meaning an Arabic word written in English letters simply because the translator could not find an English equivalent and since there are sounds in Arabic which do not exist in English, and vice versa, the translator has to do their best. The rest of the first verse contains such a word. As you fly from epic to epic, safe and whole, upon a cosmic hoda of stars, your victims, your kind guards, carry your seven skies, caravan by caravan. The Arabic word here is hoda, or hodajin, a word which I didn't know until recently. It is a small pavilion covered in cushions that is placed on a camel's back for the rider. The next point of interest is the reference to the seven skies or seven heavens being carried by Inanna's guards. In Arabic, Darwish wrote, The word for your skies that Darwish uses is Samawatiki, which comes from the Arabic word Sama, typically meaning sky. However, in classical Arabic, and especially within the Quran, this word is often used interchangeably for heaven or the heavens. It is not necessarily the same as paradise, but more the cosmic domain of the sun, moon, planets, and stars. The number seven here is interesting. Not only does it repeatedly come up in Sumerian mythology, 
as we already had the seven gates of the underworld and the seven judges of the underworld, but the very notion of the seven heavens, or skies, is shared by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Even in the Puranas, in Hinduism, a variety of ancient texts in the Sanskrit language steeped in symbolism mention the world being divided into 14 parts, seven upper parts and seven lower. The reason behind this is debated, ranging from the occult to early cosmology. Humans of antiquity noticed seven observable celestial bodies in the sky. The sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, and along that, the thousands of stars. These celestial bodies appear to move across the sky, each in their own course. Philosophers and mathematicians of the time, such as Aristotle, Plato, Ptolemy and Pythagoras, developed various theories based on these observations, now commonly known as that of the celestial or planetary spheres. It was therefore believed that each of these celestial bodies was contained within its own sphere or ring, placed in a certain order above the earth, which was believed to be the centre of the universe. The order of these spheres or rings, what they contained, how they interacted with one another, and how they moved, was open to debate. The next part contains an example of how we can lose some poetic devices in translation. Those who tend your horses approach the water between your hands and the twin rivers. The first among goddesses is the one most filled with us. In the original Arabic, those who tend Inanna's horses approach the water between the palms of her hands. It reads, The word used for palms in this sense is Nakhil, as in Nakhili Yadaiki, the palms of your hands. Darwish's choice of the word for palms is significant because Nakhil is normally used in the sense of palm trees and not the palm of the hand. Colloquially, at least, we normally use the simpler, more abrupt word of kaf when talking about the hands. What we have here is a play on words, a double meaning, which is a poetic device I highly appreciate, though it is a shame that this has been lost in translation. And indeed, as I read his poems, you would notice that there are metaphors or expressions that may sound a little odd in English but when looking up their Arabic counterparts, have a certain beauty and flow to them. No matter how accurate or true to form a translation is, some of the beauty of the original language is always lost, and would like to believe that this is true for all literature in all languages. I earlier mentioned the story of the Great Flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Sumerian ruler. Darwish makes a possible reference when he writes, let the water rain down upon us from the Sumerian sky, as it does in myths. The Sumerian story of the Great Flood is recorded as one of the stories of Gilgamesh, a Sumerian ruler with a Herculean reputation of strength and determination. Though he is not directly involved in the flood itself, but rather he is being told this story by a figure called Utnapishtim. The Sumerians believed that the gods secretly plotted to cause a great flood to punish mankind, which is keeping in with the theme of Noah's story and the reasons for the flood there. In particular, the god Enlil, who is believed to be the head of the pantheon and the god of storms. The reasons why are not actually clear, as the surviving tablets that tell the story 
have these crucial parts missing. What was humanity doing wrong exactly? We don't know. Enki, the god of wisdom, leaked this plan to Utnapishtim and commanded him to build a boat in order to save as many lives as possible. He gave precise instructions, including measurements and the layout which are detailed in the tablets. Upon finishing the boat, Utnapishtim loaded it with his silver and gold and all the living things he had, including his own relatives and craftsmen. According to these very tablets, when the storm and the floods actually start, the gods are shown as cowardly, retreating to heaven and cowering like dogs by lying down. Ishtar, or Inanna, is described as shrieking like a woman in childbirth, in mourning of what happened. When the flood abates and Utnapishtim descends from the boat onto land, he makes a sacrifice to the gods. Inanna is said to have visited him and to have proclaimed, Ye gods, as surely as I shall not forget this amulet around my neck, I shall be mindful of these days and never forget them. The gods may come to the sacrificial offering, but Enlil may not come, because he brought about the flood and annihilated my people without considering the consequences. This reflects Inanna's status as just and as beloved, since she refers to humanity as her own people. Enlil, the original architect of the Great Flood, is even admonished by Enki, the god of wisdom, for sending a disproportionate punishment upon all of humanity and lacking compassion. It is only then that Utnapishtim and his wife are blessed with all mortality. The next part of the poem I want to mention is a well-known quote. If you look up Darwish and Inanna's Milk, you will most likely see this verse being the centre of attention. I will read the Arabic first, then the English. وَإِنْ كَانَ لَبُدَّ مِنْ قَمْرٍ فَلَيَكُونَ عَالِيًا عَالِيًا وَمِنْ صُنْعِ بَغْدَادِ لَا عَرَبِيًّا وَلَا فَارِسِيًّا If there must be a moon, let it be high, a high moon made in Baghdad, neither Arab or Persian. The moon, like many objects such as plants and animals, is a recurring subject for Mahmoud Darwish. The impression that I get is that for him it symbolizes hope, a light in the darkness. Earlier in the poem, in the third stanza, he says, For you, stretched out in the corridor in silk and grey trousers, and not for metaphors of you, that I awake in my wilderness and tell myself that a moon will rise from my darkness. Now, I'm not sure who he is describing here in the corridor, but there is a sense here that Darwish is comforting himself and reassuring himself. In traditional Arabic culture, the moon is also a symbol of beauty, be it physical or otherwise. This line of his expresses to me how art, whether it is the music we listen to, the paintings we appreciate, the prose and poetry we read, all transcend human barriers. Baghdad is not only in Mesopotamia, the region in which Sumeria and its successive civilizations such as Akkadia are found. It was to be founded by the Arabs in the 7th century, who had been united under the banner of the Islamic faith after conquering the land from Sassanid Persia, now modern-day Iran. Baghdad was founded upon this land a century later by the Abbasid Caliphate, who aspired to make it into a center of learning and academia. And it is thanks to the city of Baghdad that the Arabs, both Muslim and Christian, and their fellow Jews, Syriacs and Nestorians, set about translating ancient Greek texts on philosophy and the natural sciences. 
texts which Western civilizations highly regard as being the influence upon their Enlightenment period. When this poem was written in 1999, the Iraqi people were facing the hardship of international sanctions as well as Saddam Hussein's regime. As a country, it was still reeling from the Iraq-Iran war, which began in 1980 and lasted for almost eight years. There was an ideological animosity between the two, for Iraq's secular Arab nationalism stood opposed to Iran's revolutionary pan-Islamism. It was the deadliest conventional war between developing nations to date. The most conservative estimates place Iran's military deaths at 200,000, among them child soldiers, and Iraqi military deaths at 105,000, with more than 100,000 civilians killed. Iraq's invasion of Iran at the start of the war left cities such as Khuramshah devastated, earning it the nickname, the City of Blood. The renowned journalist Robert Fisk would report on the horrific effects of Iraq's chemical weapons against soldiers and civilians, some of them Iraqi. To say that Iran was bloodied by this war would be generous. Though Iraq was left a regional power, it suffered massive debt and a labor shortage. This talk of a Baghdad moon, of a hope and a light in the darkness, is even more tragic in hindsight, for Baghdad and Iraq as a whole would be invaded by the USA and its allies in 2003, four years after the poem, the disastrous consequences of which would stoke sectarian violence, suicide bombings, and contribute to the formation of the so-called Islamic State in the north of the country. But as ever, I want to leave on a positive note, and that is to answer the namesake of this poem. Just what is Inanna's milk? The last stanza of this poem reads, For you, reading the newspaper in the hallway, fighting the flu, I say, take a cup of hot chamomile and two aspirin, so that Inanna's milk may settle in you, and we may know what time it is at the meeting of the two rivers. Inanna's milk is not in the epics or poems which we mentioned previously, but found in the canticles, or songs, that were sung in the course of a sacred marriage between a king and the votary of Astarte or Ishtar. This is a ritual representing the union between Inanna and her husband Dumuzid, who was once a king, would be elevated to a god of shepherds. As part of this ritual, the king and the votary, or representative of Inanna, would stand within a shrine called a kiur, before the god Enlil. The votary would utter a prayer for the king's life and reign, and the king would pray to the votary, asking to drink the milk from her breast to assure the fertility and prosperity of Sumer and its people. According to some historical scholarship, these rituals recorded on ancient tablets would make their way to the Canaanites, who worshipped their version of Ishtar, Astarte, and had their own cults of worship. Eventually, they would leave an influence on a place unexpected, the Song of Songs in the last section of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Ketuvim, or the Writings. Unlike the rest of the Ketuvim and the other parts of the Bible, such as the Torah and the Nevi'im, the Song of Songs is a section filled with sensuous and romantic poetry devoid of moralistic, theological, or religious discussion. At first, the inclusion of this section into the canon of the Hebrew scriptures does not seem to quite fit in, but it has been described as one of the most inspiring books in the Old Testament, using them as an allegory in which Yahweh, or God, plays the part of the lover, 
and the Hebrew people play the part of his bride, such as Inanna's milk, a representation of prosperity and fertility that has woven its way through time under different names and under different guises. But for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you've learned something new, as I have.